0: You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. I want to start off by apologizing for missing... Our last regularly scheduled podcast i don't have a particularly good excuse we had a couple guests cancel on us at the last minute and i had a couple projects that i had to finish up and we were under deadline and we just didn't have time to push one out Uh, but we've recorded a number of episodes uh, going forward and we're back with a vengeance and we'll do our best not to miss another episode Um, joining us today and I'm, i'm maybe more excited about this episode than i've been about any of the other episodes we've recorded thus far is ambassador lewis luck Um, who has a truly illustrious bio. Um, He served in the US Agency for International Development, or USAID, for about 27 years. Um, He was a director um, for at least five different countries uh, in USAID. Uh, Those include Bolivia, Jordan, Brazil, Haiti, and Iraq. Um, He was also an ambassador to uh, the kingdom of Eswatini, uh so just a really interesting and rich life and he just recently wrote a book about his career in the foreign service uh, called from timbuktu to duck and cover Um, we talk about the book it's the subject of the podcast Um, and i highly recommend you go out and read it speaking personally and i i say this in the podcast episode uh, it made me feel uh, positive about the united states and about the things that the us does in the world in a way that i haven't for quite some time Um, and i think does a really good job of pulling back um, some of the politics that seems to affect all of our conversations about our role in the world and actually puts the focus where it needs to be, which is on people, um, which is in a way what this podcast and what Perch Perspectives is all about. Um, so thank you to, to Lewis, to Ambassador Luck for making the time to come on and also for writing this book and sharing his insights with us. Uh, okay, this is the part where my editor will probably say that I've talked enough. It's also the part where this time I remembered to say that we recorded this podcast on friday november the 19th um this will publish after thanksgiving so for the u.s listeners i hope that uh, you had a wonderful thanksgiving uh and cheers we'll see you out there um lewis i'm glad we were finally able to get together you're the first podcast guest to come on the perch pod uh live from costa rica which took some doing so welcome aboard glad to be here jacob I have a feeling that a lot of listeners, whether they're American or international listeners that are listening to this podcast, I'm sure they've heard of the CIA and DoD and all sorts of other acronyms but'm I'm, I'm pretty sure USAID probably kind of gets the short end of the stick so why don't you just tell us a little bit you know from a high level point of view what is USAID and how did you kind of um, end up there against all odds <laughs> uh,
1: USAID stands for the u uh, s Agency for International Development, which is a uh, under the um, a separate agency from the State Department, but under the policy guidance of the State Department, one of the foreign service uh, agencies like the State Department and and so forth. Um, uh, USAID was founded by John Kennedy and his administration with an act of Congress in, I think it was 1961. So we're looking at uh, 60 years of uh, of USAID. As far as I know now, I guess we're we, and it's hard for me to not say we, since I worked for him for 30-some years, (laughs) um, uh, present in about 70 to 80 countries uh, with varying size of uh, economic development programs. So USAID does economic development, and uh, in in certain cases where there are natural disasters like volcanoes or hurricanes or so forth, earthquakes, um, USAID is like the international version of FEMA. So they they provide uh, um, U.S. Uh, assistance from the American people, paid for bo- paid for by the taxpayers, to respond to uh, to emergencies. But the bulk of the uh, the bulk of the program is a large, uh, focused uh, international economic development programs. In um, the larger programs are in obviously the uh, the countries that we consider to be uh, strategic, uh, and uh, of, of great importance to the U.S. Uh, so. USAID does nice things for nice people <laughs> in um, some places all over the world, but it's it's all done uh, in the uh, foreign policy interest of the United States.
0: Is um. I, I, it just occurred me to ask this, do other countries have the equivalents of USAID? Like when you were out there in the world, were you rubbing shoulders with other organizations that were trying to do the same sorts of things? Or would you say this is a uniquely American agency?
1: No, it's, it's, it's not unique, even though I think USAID is probably the oldest of these economic uh, development agencies that that's, you know, part of a part of a government. Uh, During my career, I worked with, um, you know, plenty of uh, folks from that, In similar kinds of agencies from, for example, Canada, uh, Great Britain, um, France, Germany, uh, and so forth. I mean, there, there's, there's any, any number of these uh, countries that are doing it now, even some of the countries that we considered to be graduates of, uh, USAID, um, assistance, you know, from years ago, like, like South Korea, for example. Mm.
0: And, um, It was kind of shocking for me, but about halfway, maybe a little more than halfway through the book, um, you kind of just throw in that there was a moment in time where the U.S. government was thinking about getting rid of USAID, and it comes sort of after, you know, you've been talking in the book about all the great things that USAID does, and it honestly kind of hits you like a ton of bricks, and it, of course, it ends up not working. Um, but do you feel like there is a threat to that in the future that the American people don't really understand the value of USAID, that even Congress doesn't understand it? Or do you think that, yeah, that it, it, it is safe?
1: Right. Well, it's, it's a, it's a good question and it's very relevant. Um, I don't think we're going to go away. Uh, there have been some real serious, uh, attempts to get rid of uh, USAID in the past, particularly during the, the Clinton, uh, administration. Uh, there was a certain, um, <laughs> senator from uh, my original home state of North Carolina that was um, very focused on getting rid of USAID, and fortunately failed. He also tried to get rid of it at the same time the USIS, United States Information Service. That mm-hmm. that, for better or for worse, uh, what was gotten rid of. USAID survived, and I think. But it's been a, it, and I think it will. I mean, even the idea back then uh, during those days was to was to meld it those kinds of functions within the State Department. But we kept mm-hmm. making the case that the the functions of diplomacy, um, in, in many ways, are not do not correspond exactly with the uh, the functions of economic development, and they they both sort of have separate cultures and separate pathways. And um, I'm I'm really glad that uh, you said remained uh, independent. A states uh, the state department still has a great uh, amount of control over the budget, but but it's a separate agency still uh, with with uh, separate presence as part of the you know, considered part of the overall embassy, quote unquote, uh, embassy in a, in a, in a, in a foreign country, a host country, as we call it.
0: Hmm. Well, let's, let's maybe backtrack a bit and and start back at the beginning, um, because I I feel like you, you sort of having the career that you did all around the world uh, was unlikely uh, based on your origin. So how did you kind of stumble backwards um, into your career at USAID?
1: Well, I, Really, I'm from I'm from I was from a small city in a, in in North Carolina. Okay, which is not exactly your segue into uh, international fame and glory. Uh, not not that that's what I achieved, but um, in any event, I it, it really started from um, being very interested in um, the the Middle East because of really from going to church. Uh, which is a uh, a fine Southern tradition, uh, and I don't know if that's gone away or not since I live in Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I went. To, I spent a lot of time in church, and I got to know a couple of um, professors at the uh, University of North Carolina that were uh, religion professors and archaeologists. And uh, I introduced one of these archeolo- one of the professors who was also a minister and an, and an archaeologist to my congregation. For some reason, they asked me to introduce him. And long story short, it led to me being asked to go to Israel uh, to participate in an archaeological dig at a place called Lachish. Uh, and when I was 17 years old, I was the youngest person on the dig, and it just really knocked me—it knocked my socks off because suddenly I realized that the, the the world didn't turn around my little little southern town, and the uh, you know it was uh, there was a big world out there, and I was very intrigued by it, and was determined to uh, take foreign languages, learn about uh international cultures and so forth and that's that's what i did i, I majored in international or global studies in uh, undergraduate school uh took a year in france uh so i i i more than nominally speak french My french is pretty good uh, especially from somebody originally from north carolina and now from texas but um anyway so i i uh, i forged ahead and uh, it, with the whole international uh, focus on my the rest of my studies, uh, international MBA, and uh, was happy to uh, try to start to define what it is I wanted to do when I, you know, quote unquote, grew up. And uh, much to my surprise, there was this agency called um, USAID that seemed to be doing exactly what I wanted to do, you know, get involved in something um, international, something that was important work, a good way to spend your career a good way to spend your life and hopefully give something positive back to uh uh to, to people that are sort of less fortunate than 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 many of us
0: yeah i'll just say on a personal note i i deeply resonated with with the opening of the book because um israel was also the way that i got interested in the world um as well um and you know kind of stumbled into it and i i could just it, it it hit me on a lot of levels that that was the thing that kind of got you pulled in. And I also, I even wrote down uh, this HL Mencken quote that you had at the beginning about how in the South divine inspiration is as common as hookworm. Uh, I got a good, I got a good (laughs) chuckle out of that one too. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a true quote. Um, but listen, so, you know, Israel, archaeological digs, Middle East, and then your first assignment is Mali, of all places. Um, Mali, which has been in the news in recent years, not for good reason, uh, with multiple military coups and jihadist attacks and all kinds of terrible things going on there. Um, how did you end up, how did you go from archaeological digs in Israel to ending up in Mali?
1: Well, I, by that time, I, I I was fluent in French, and uh, Mali is a, a French-speaking country, The U.S. was just starting um, economic development programs in West Africa uh, in the aftermath of a very severe drought, uh, which took place in the middle 70s, I guess it was. I mean, even though these droughts are intermittent, come and go uh, rather often. So I got interviewed for the job and I I wanted to go there. I mean, I was intrigued by it. And, you know, that's where Timbuktu was. You know, I always read about that as being sort of synonymous, synonymous with the end of the earth. Uh, and and it is, um, and was happy to go to uh, to Bamako and be assigned. But I, I, I went home from the State Department uh, where my office was uh, one day and told my wife. Uh, I said we we've been assigned to Mali, and she said Maui. <laughs> I said no Mali. She said Bali. No uh, Mali. It's where Timbuktu is. So she said that's a real place. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, we kind of went from there and uh, like. I suppose maybe four or five months later, we were we were in Bamako, Mali, um, trying to learn about this new job and this new culture and uh, work productively in this one of the poorest countries in the world.
0: Well, and and somehow you survived uh, these these terrible plane flights that I can't even imagine getting on today, and these Land Cruiser rides through the desert. I mean. I, 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 am, I admire your courage. Was it, was it kind of, did it challenge your courage in the moment to have to do those things or was it just putting one foot in front of the other?
1: It was, it was, well, you know, you, you operate a lot on faith and uh, there's a lot of things that are completely out of your control and, and you've you got to realize quite quickly you can't control everything. Uh, I decided after a few uh, near misses on, on small planes that I would rather drive anywhere and normally we had really good, experienced uh, drivers, uh, locals who really knew what they were doing. And could, you know, for example, uh, we crossed uh, part of the Sahara, going from uh, uh, going f- from Mopti in Mali to up to um, Gao and Timbuktu. And uh, you know, we were riding in the uh, in the desert. Uh, there's there's a road now, but back then there was there wasn't even a road, and we were we were navigating through the sand or through the, the dunes by compass. So, I mean, that was quite an experience. So I really saw some uh, pretty amazing things at a, at a re- relatively tender age. It was a fascinating, fascinating country. I really loved most, almost every minute of it.
0: Well, and, and not only that, it seems like you really affected real change there. I mean, maybe you can tell a little bit of the story behind, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but the, is it pronounced Manantali? Is that Yes,
1: the... exactly right. Manantali.
0: Yeah. T- tell us a little bit about that because it's well, a fascinating story.
1: We got into that sort of by mistake in that uh, our boss in Washington, the head of the Africa Bureau, volunteered for uh, USAID to be involved in the, the resettlement of 12,000 rural villagers in a very, very isolated uh, part of uh, Western Mali, the first region of Mali. And that's the kind of thing, That's a, it's guaranteed 60 minutes territory. You get into something like that, and you know, one, you're, you're almost guaranteed to fail, and two, <laughs> you're going to bring, bring a, a lot of wrath down on your heads for, for having failed. So my partner and I, um, we did a lot of research on that. We, I mean, it was given to us, we had to, we had to do this project. And it was uh, I ended up writing one of the preliminary documents and got it approved in Washington. And um, so I started, you know, one, one WAG said, uh, why should we invest this money to move all these people? Why don't we just give them a bus ticket to Dakar? And I I sort of I was kind of horrified for a minute in my naivete until I realized that one, there were no roads. Number two, there were no buses. So it was a it was a joke. And um, anyway, we got to work and did a lot of field trips and spent a lot of time in the field doing um, a lot of the preliminary research uh, in among all the villages that had it had to be moved. And most of them didn't know that they were going to be moved. And they didn't even know what a dam was. My. My uh, colleague spoke Bambara. I spoke French, but uh, he would have to go through and, uh, uh, the Bambara part of it, and, and I, would, yeah, I would chime in when uh, we had French speakers. <laughs> but we figured out what we needed to do um, mainly by doing the research on the failed resettlement projects that had taken place all over all, mostly other parts of Africa. And uh, lessons learned, and there had been a recent resettlement program not far from Bamako in Mali um, that had, that was pretty much a disaster. And, you know, they, they didn't get started in time. They ran out of money. They didn't have buy-in from the villagers and so forth, the locals. They were getting moved. So we, we went to school and all of that and really did it right. I mean, and I think the evaluations after it was all said and done sort of bore that out. I mean, the reason we weren't on 60 Minutes talking to somebody is because, um, Nobody drowned. Everybody got moved. Um, means of uh, production um, were reestablished, m- main, mainly in the agriculture sector. And it was, you know, it was a, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. There was nothing. It was like living in your living, breathing National Geographic. And uh, we got the we got the job done. And people uh, people moved. not everybody was happy to move. But after a few years, things were resettled, and people were being productive and. Uh, Healthcare was more uh, accessible. For example, I mean this this was the place where little kids would see us and run away, completely frightened to death because they'd never seen somebody with white skin. And um, I said, "You, yeah, John, never had that that effect on anybody before." But anyway, they were the parents thought it was hilarious. Uh, but anyway, that's what we that's what we were dealing with that kind of stuff on a pretty much a constant basis.
0: Well, and you were successful. I mean, I believe I believe if you wanted to, you probably could now take a bus from Montpellier <laughs> yeah, to you,
1: Yeah, you probably could. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's a uh, it's a it's a changed world. I haven't been to that part of uh, Western Senegal, Eastern Sen- Eastern Senegal, uh, in a long time. Um, so uh, I've certainly been to Senegal, or yet, yeah, but mainly around the capital cities and so forth. So they 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 have a whole bunch of other problems now that have to do with the, uh, the political uh, instability and, and so forth that you read about and hear about.
0: Well, and I wanted to ask you about that before we kind of moved on in the, in the narrative of the book, which is, I mean, it must be somewhat disheartening for you to see what's happened in Mali just over the course of the past few years.
1: Yes, uh, without a doubt. And, and I have to say, uh, our, our French colleagues really saved the day um, with their... With their intervention there to to keep, I mean, Bamako would have been overrun. The the great, greater part of Mali would have been completely overcome, uh, if not for the intervention of the French military. And the U.S. was doing its part, I think, on logistics behind the scenes. But the French really get the, the credit. And of course, the uh, the other some of the other countries in the region really were major contributors to trying to turn the tide. Uh, not not just the Malians, but uh, also the uh, the Nigerians and particularly the Chadians, who actually have a had a have a very well trained military, so um, they there were some allies in this, and it, but it was it's very it's very uh, discouraging to see that Mali has uh, not its development has been really interrupted and in, in, in some ways uh, turned in the in, in the wrong direction, but because of the instability caused by the mainly it started by well it's a long story but a, a lot of uh, bad bad guys came over from libya when uh, qaddafi fell and got into other parts of north africa and then down into uh, places like mali and algeria uh, with their weapons and uh, there was a lot of you know religious uh uh, uh upheaval uh, as a result of that too so uh the malians tended to be i mean 90 percent uh, muslim but very peaceful Sunni Muslims. And they were just a joy to be around always. And we, those kind of problems did not uh, exist when I was there, nor was there, uh, nor were there ethnic tensions between the, uh, between the, what some people mistakenly call tribes, which is very politically incorrect. You're not supposed to say tribes, you're supposed to say ethnic groups. And they would, in my day, they would make fun of each other and tell jokes about each other, but it was all in fun. And now there's serious conflicts, for example, between the, um, uh the dogon and the uh, the herders the uh i uh, forget the name right now but anyway so um, it, there's it, it's really a shame what's uh, what, what's happened
0: yeah do you have any sense of of why i mean it, it almost seems like that's happening everywhere in the world where everyone is kind of going back to what's familiar and and provincial and you know it's it's all about who's who's related to you by blood or by anywhere else well
1: it's complicated i mean the uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, uh herder rights versus uh agricultural rights and land ownership that's one of the main things and the uh, and some of it was just the, 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 they just don't like each other as it is a long tradition you know it goes back you know generations and uh everybody was a little suspicious in my days of the uh the Tuareg, the folks in the, uh, kind of related to the Berbers or our Berbers in the, in the Northern part of the country. And, but then more discontent sort of, uh, broke out among the, uh, the other groups, the Bambra, the Sonray, uh, Dogon, and, um, the one I can't remember right now. Um, but anyway, um, it, it's, it's a shame that's happened. Uh, it's also spilled over into, um, countries like Nigeria, which has its own set of, you know, special problems and, and other 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 places it's less severe and, and a good number of other West African and other and East African countries, but it's certainly a, a different day than when I was there.
0: Yeah, and I, I also wanted to ask you, so I mean, you know, you, you started in Mali and then you had a num- you had numerous stops, but sort of over the years you would always sort of come back to the middle east slash north africa you had a tour in tunisia jordan we'll talk about your time in in iraq for sure um but when, when you kind of look back at it do you feel like there was a moment where you realized that there was something in the water that like islamism was beginning to percolate in a way that it hadn't been before was there a definitive moment of change was it always there and it was just under some other guise or some other ideology? How, how do you think about the transformation, really, that's happened in the region over the, por- uh, over the course of your career?
1: Well, I was a, I'd studied the Middle East. I had to take an Arabic in school. I was really planning to be a sort of a Middle East specialist. Then I found myself in Africa. I mean, it's, very, it's easy to find for example spanish speakers but it's almost very very hard, difficult to find foreign service officers that are fluent in french so I, I found myself sort of being directed to french-speaking countries in africa and then i got assigned to costa rica here where i am right now 30 years ago spent five years in costa rica which i loved and it was a, it was a great story of development uh, and successful development there we closed the office and said y'all don't need us anymore um <laughs> And then I ended up uh, in Tunisia, got caught in the Gulf War, and ended up there in Bolivia, but I was always trying really to get back to the Middle East, which is sort of where my heart was, and there was so much happening there, and I was really going to be right in the middle of the action. But to answer your question, uh, Jacob, it was really a less of a, at the time, it was less a question of the uh, of f- fomenting of of, uh, of radical Islam or, or, or you know Muslims, as it, as it was us trying to deal with Saddam Hussein, who was a, that was a different, you know, different kettle of fish. And, uh, I sort of said, you know, my, my favorite career counselor, uh, the one who influenced where I was assigned and what I did more than anybody ever in Washington was, was Saddam Hussein. Cause every time he would do something terrible like invade Kuwait or, you know, threaten Jordan or do something you know, terrible. I, you know, it, it affected my, my life, my assignments. And I, I ended up, uh, uh, going from uh, Bolivia to Jordan, and got plunked right down in the middle of uh, a very interesting time where uh, Jordan had, had signed a peace treaty with Israel, for example. But uh, you know the the Gulf War and all that was uh, Gulf War two. Uh, the Iraq uh, adventure was was yet to start.
0: Yeah, but before we dive into that, and before we leave Latin America, like you said, I mean, you did have this tour in Costa Rica, and. Obviously, it was influential because you're there now, and you had almost an equally fascinating tour mm. in Bolivia. Um, and I, I just wonder. I mean, you're not in the Middle East. You're not, you know, uh, living in Tunis on the Mediterranean or, or anything like <laughs> that. Now that you have the choice to live where you want, uh, has has Latin America captured your heart? Uh, do you feel sort of done with the Middle East? Is it still uh, a point well, of passion?
1: Well, I'm not as young as I used to be, so that that's, and I have bad knees, so that sort of affects my <laughs> uh, ability to. to to move around as much as I used to, even though I'm, I'm still determined to keep going and uh, travel, um, and I'm really looking forward to a, f- a few upcoming trips. But um, no, I like I, we like Costa Rica because it was a, it was an ideal place to, for the family to be outdoors, to take advantage of all of the incredible natural wonders of this place, and the people are really nice. And we learn Spanish. Uh, it's imperfect. I speak, you know uh, I speak Spanish with arrows. Uh, I speak better French, but I, we, we get by just fine. I mean, there's a lot of Americans down here that don't speak any Spanish, which I find just hard to believe, but no, we, but my wife and myself, we speak, we speak Spanish and our son was born here. So he's Costa Rican and mm-hmm. it really makes a, a big difference on our, uh, our residency status. Uh, but more than anything, it's close to all of our kids. Our, our kids all live in Texas. And we can take direct flights uh, from here to uh, both Houston and Dallas, so it's uh, it's kind of a perfect place to be.
0: Is it fair to say that of all the countries that you that you worked in, that Costa Rica was the most successful from its engagement with USAID?
1: Um, I would say it's tied with Jordan, and Jordan is a real unknown. I mean, that story's not told very much. I mean, in Costa Rica, we had a lot of money, it was during the Contra-Sandinista um, conflict days, mm-hmm. and Costa Rica was doing all this, everything economically was doing it wrong. It was a, you know, statist economy, and import substitution, all this stuff, and um, we helped basically the Costa Ricans do what they knew they needed to do anyway, uh, because they're smart, and they had a number of world-class, you know, economic savants that that were wonderful to work with, so... We weren't doing it for them. We weren't doing it to them. We were doing it with them and they mm-hmm. deserve all the credit for um, the, the, the complete transformation of, of the economy. So we were happy to, you know, say, hallelujah, uh, y'all don't need us anymore. We're closing the office and we're moving on. So that's, that's what we did. So that was very satisfying, but uh, I will say uh, as well, that uh, Jordan was a, was a, it was a real challenge. Um, right there at the, at the start of a lot of substantive change in Jordan uh significant political um, challenges stability challenges and um the the finally and finally we were able to get the attention of congress uh saying look these folks are these these folks are, really need our help and they need our attention they signed a peace treaty with Israel for god's sakes in 1993 and they're not seeing any benefits of the peace so we've got to we've got to get their attention, and that's it. Was it was uh, thanks to some really well placed uh, uh, Jordanian officials, including one very powerful woman, Palestinian Jordanian woman, uh, which was uh, you know a significant thing in it, in and of itself that helped to get the uh, the attention of uh, other people in the government, including the king and um, other uh members of the royal family as well as some the movers and shakers that that were really able to uh, affect uh, economic reform in a meaningful way that uh, resulted in a uh, a really large program when i got to when i got to jordan it was it was minuscule by the time i left um we had uh, we were in the neighborhood of 500 million dollars a year Mm -hmm. and in the money and we were using the money uh for things that i think uh, basically water uh, sector things, water infrastructure, uh, economic reform, microfinance, health and uh, reproductive health, the kinds of uh, interventions that I think Amer- American taxpayers can be, really be proud of.
0: Yeah, there, there are a few countries in the world that have that have fewer resources, I would argue, than Jordan. I mean, it's got to be one of the most hard-scrabble yeah. countries to build a I mean, nation.
1: No, that's it's really true, uh, and it's right beside Israel. And we we used to jokingly say, uh, um, "Jordan finds itself between a rack and a hard place," and uh, <laughs> it was it was really true. Um, very uh, something like only ten percent of the land is arable, and that's the Jordan Valley. Uh Water is scarce. It's the second water most water poor country in the world supposedly i never did find out what the what number one was but jordan was definitely number two and uh, it was you know a big city like amman several million people uh did not have water all the time i mean the water would come on uh, two, two or three times a week and you you, you you fill up your cisterns and you do the best you can uh it was uh, it was was and is a very dire situation from the point of view of water
0: and yet, they're, and yet the, the political regime there seems to be, I mean, they're surrounded by chaos on all sides. Um, they've had to welcome in pr- probably millions of Syrian refugees at this point as a result of the Syrian civil war. Um, and yet the country still seems to be holding together. Somebody like me who's supposed to do you know, geopolitical risk for a living, on paper, Jordan shouldn't exist. There's no way that this thing should be able to to keep it going no. from how it has.
1: No, that's a good point. But uh, you uh you under, um, understate the, uh, the the severity of the of the refugee problems in Jordan. There have been waves of waves. The, the first wave I was familiar with and or part of was to see the the return of all the Palestinian Jordanians from Kuwait uh, after Gulf War after Gulf War One. They were they were thrown out by the Kuwaitis and had to go back because uh, King Hussein was not particularly uh, uh, supportive of the of the Kuwaitis. He was really saying all kinds of Supportive things of Saddam because of his, you know, playing his, to his political base. And his, what he said in English was far more conciliatory than what he was saying in Arabic. <laughs> so there was the first wave of, uh, of Palestinian Jordanians to come back, and that overwhelmed Jordan. Then uh, there was the, uh, the Iraqis that, as a result of the Iraq uh, uh, conflict, uh, millions of, of, of Iraqis fled into Jordan. And then, uh, as you correctly state, then uh, because of the Syrian crisis, um, the civil war in Syria, I guess we could correctly call that a civil war, um, millions of those guys uh, spilled over into Jordan too. And there, there were, none of them were supposed to be working, but they were the, you know, all part of the uh, informal economy, as they say, and a lot of those people are still there. I think that Syrians would like to go home. Um, many of the Iraqis have gone home. Um, Syrians would like to, but I don't think in most parts of Syria it's I think people are still keeping their powder dry and trying to figure out what's going on uh, there and if and when uh, it would be safe to return and you know Syria's factionalized very much, parts of it are, are relatively safe and part certainly are not. but yeah. Jordan Jordan's had to deal with all of that, and uh, it is rather remarkable that they've they've maintained um, a fairly I don't know though, I mean the economy, uh, I don't think at these days you would call it robust, but there's been an awful lot of uh, investment in the Jordanian economy. They're doing a lot of economic things correctly. They've created a lot of jobs, but when you have a very high population birth rate like they have in Jordan, uh, exacerbated by the influx of all these refugees, it's, it's tough, I mean it's a continuous challenge.
0: Yeah, um, before we take leave of Jordan and, and sort of get into the latter portion of your career, um, there are so many good stories in the Jordan chapter due largely to you having to play host to, uh, <laughs> to uh, plenty of U.S. officials. Um, that Just tell us your favorite one. I, I, don't, I don't want to pick one for you. Just tell us sort of maybe your, your favorite story of having to host someone from the United States, either a good story or a bad story.
1: Oh, well, I can. There's some I want to be. I, I want, I, for reasons of great sensitivity, I, I never want to get myself in too much trouble. Yeah. even though I've kind of prided myself on, on being honest in the face of to, uh, speaking truth to power uh, throughout my career. I'll tell you one story. Um, the, um, the administrator of USAID, uh, who under the Clinton administration, was the guy that was fighting really hard to save the agency from the onslaught of this certain senator from, uh, from North Carolina. And at the height of all of that, he came to, um, he came to Jordan in order to in order to dedicate a, a wastewater treatment plant that we had financed and built at uh, wadi musa which is the town the little jordanian town beside petra which is one of the most amazing sites in the world and everybody should come see it as, uh, as part of your bucket list i highly recommend it i've been there 42 times myself um anyway so um brian atwoods is, is his name brian flew in we got him um, the the uh uh, the king lent him lent us a helicopter we flew brian down to the um, site of the of, of the wastewater treatment plant at wadi musa and accompanying us was as as would be appropriate was the the minister of water and irrigation who and the jordanian tradition is that there's always one christian minister uh, everybody else is you know obviously would be muslim uh, but there's always one christian minister by tradition and and, and the water of, of water and irrigation was the christian so i whispered in um, in brian's ear and i said you know uh minister had here is 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 the christian minister i just thought you'd be interested in that he's a he's a good fella and we have a great relationship and we've been very collaborative through the whole time uh, great partnership so we get to uh, petra and brian ups up and says to the minister Mr. Minister, I understand that your family's Christian. How how did that come? How did that come to be? And <laughs> and I, I I said, oh geez, you know, uh, he's he, he. I I think he thinks that you know maybe some Baptist minister, you know, was through here, you know, thirty or forty years ago and converted the converted his family to Christianity. And which of course is not the truth. I mean, it goes back to you know time immemorial from the, you know the time of you know who. In uh, Jerusalem, and I said, uh, through, uh, the minister answered and said, "Well, you know we we kind of got it directly from our Lord and Savior." <laughs> <laughs> and um uh, Brian just kind of turned all shades of red and was embarrassed, and I, I, I out of great sensitivity, I, I put that precisely into my book, uh, <laughs> describing that that situation, but and I hope he didn't take offense. I told him I was going to put the book, put it, put the story in the book. But that's that's one the one the ones that's memorable and the ones that I can talk about. Some other I sp- I probably shouldn't talk about.
0: Yeah, and maybe not. And it, it, It's there for for folks to read. But if if you want to, you know, read random things about you know members of the Gaddafi family and Hafez Al Assad and plenty of others, uh, <laughs> there's plenty of material here in the book for you to go. There
1: on. is. I mean, and, and I saw. I mean, one of the most amazing situations that, or the scenes that I saw was going to uh, King Hussein's funeral in 1999, where practically every world leader was there, and, um, including uh, Bibi Netanyahu from Israel in the same room as Hafez al-Assad from Syria, and everybody in between. It was, it was pretty crazy.
0: I'm, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Henry Kissinger. Listeners probably know that, but I will say his, his description of Hafez al-Assad being the only person he was ever in a negotiation with that wouldn't just dangle his foot across the ledge, but would fling himself over the mountain expecting to catch right. something on the way down to get the concession, I've always thought that was pretty dead on
1: yeah yeah he was um, uh, he was a memorable character read i have got a lot of stories about that uh, funeral in my book
0: um kind of moving on it it sort of felt like your career and it, i mean it has it has quite the end in Swaziland that we'll get to, but it it it's sort of the the narrative of your book had the feel that everything was sort of preparing you for these two major missions for lack of a better word in in both Haiti and Iraq, where you've got two countries for very different reasons um, facing really, really dire and serious problems. And you become, um, you know, one of the, I don't think it's hyperbole to say one of the most important Americans and trying to deliver aid and assistance and help to these folks in both Haiti and Iraq, um, maybe to mix long-term benefits, but at the time very pivotal. Um, so, you know, maybe talk a little bit that we can start with Haiti and then move into Iraq.
1: Well, I'm trying to remember, uh, you know Haiti uh, my my presence with USAID as mission director there the head of, of the USAID mission uh, in in Haiti was before I went to Iraq but then I went back I think in the after the after the Haiti earthquake and after serving in Iraq in a in a fairly pivotal position I went back as the head of the the initial US response to the Haiti earthquake so Haiti's kind of in two different different pots but uh, in different, two different very different periods So, um, after uh, I I left Haiti the first time, before the earthquake, um, I was sort of singled out uh, by the administration as somebody, uh, this is the Bush 43 uh, administration, as somebody that was a Middle East specialist that had been a a manager of very large and complex programs, uh, spoke enough Arabic um, to get into trouble probably, but at least more than most folks. And um, was was therefore sort of by a process that was anything but clear, uh, anything but transparent was designated as the first head of Iraq reconstruction and went in there and the very first wave of civilians uh, spent six months in Kuwait uh, getting to be uh, getting prepared to go into Iraq. And we didn't really know if we were going to go or not, uh, but we were getting ready in, the, in case it happened. And it became increasingly clear that it was going to happen. Um, so uh, we planned and we planned and we coordinated with the, with everybody you're supposed to coordinate with um, the UN, the NGOs, the the whole donor community, the um, the US and other militaries, and so forth. And when um, when the rubber hit the road in April of two thousand three. After being in Kuwait for six months, we, we redeployed to Baghdad. So I was in the very first uh, group of civilians that went in, established a presence to um, do, uh, quote unquote, reconstruction, which meant uh, repairing essential infrastructure, particularly uh, water, power, sewage, uh, all, all of that associated stuff um, that to, to get um, the country back on its feet a little bit. And it was not because I should point out very significantly is this was not because of damage carried out by the war. The only the only damage from the the conflict was really the the telecommunic- telecommunications sector, and we took out a couple of bridges that we ended up building or rebuilding. But it was mainly to fix up uh, the, uh, the 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 essential infrastructure, particularly around Baghdad, but other places as well, that had just fallen into dis. Uh, disrepair as a, as, as a result of total neglect, uh, the total neglect of the Saddam uh, regime. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, it's, it's, Colin Powell used to say it's the pottery barn concept. If you break it, you got you to gotta pay for it or fix it. And so we, we broke a little bit of it, but we went in there uh, and mobilized an awful lot of Iraqi companies and Iraqi um, technicians, uh, particularly engineers and so forth. And worked very collabor- collaboratively with these folks to um, to get the power back up and running eventually, and get uh, essential uh, water uh, infrastructure, uh, wastewater treatment, sewage treatment, and so forth uh, going, so that the so that the country could start to function again. And it, where there were multiple challenges, the period of looting in Baghdad just really knocked us on a knocked us for a loop, um, and and knocked Iraq for a loop. I mean, I. I visited one ministry that had been looted just a couple of days before and they'd literally torn the, um, the wiring out of the walls, uh, <laughs> to get, to get what they could from the, from the wiring. I mean, it was, it was crazy. There was nothing left. Mm-hmm. And so all of that has, that stuff was, was fixed up mainly by, with Iraqi money and with Iraqi expertise. But, uh, we made good partnerships with the Iraqis and I was, I will say that I, I, uh, I, I liked Iraq. I mean, it's crazy to say, I mean, people, I say that to some people, they say you, you must have lost your mind, but, uh, I mean, it's not variety vacation land, believe me, <laughs> but, but it was, uh, it was a joy to work with, uh, very dedicated, smart, uh, motivated, uh, people, technicians there, and they do their own work in, uh, in Iraq. They don't, they don't like, unlike some uh, countries in the Gulf, they don't bring in all their workers from India or Bangladesh or Pakistan. I mean, they do the work themselves. So uh, I, I liked working with them and we did a lot of wonderful things and refurbished a lot of schools and replaced um, the, the Saddam currency, which is a, I tell the story in that book, uh, Jacob, you may remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a, a very huge effort that was completely under the, under the radar of replacing every Saddam dinar and replacing it with, uh, with new currency and where we didn't lose a thing. Um, not a single note and, uh, nobody was killed in, in that whole process. And we worked very collaboratively with the, the military, the uh, department of treasury, the British were, were great to work with and were instrumental in the success of that and, uh, so forth and so on. But a lot of stories, um, happened there. And I, I became, I had, I came back to Texas a couple of times because my daughter was graduating from college and a couple of things, family things that I absolutely had to be present for. And people were talking about the failure of Iraq reconstruction, the failure of this and the failure of that. I was going, what are you, 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 people don't know what you're talking about. You absolutely don't know what you're talking about because it's, you know, what we were looking at as a uh, a success and, uh, you know, progress being made every day. And yeah, there are tons of issues. That's, that's for sure. And then after the, uh, uh, after the insurrection broke out, after uh, my boss, uh, not my USAID boss, but the other boss uh, abolished the Iraqi military things got very crazy. And um, so it became even more challenging, but uh, we're very proud of, as USAID, what we were able to accomplish um, with the cooperation of a lot of, um, a lot of collaborators, allies, uh, and particularly Iraqis. So um, the, I have a whole annex in my book of all the things that we accomplished in, in one year. It's time which uh, people reading say, well, I, I had no idea this was going on. I had no idea this had happened.
0: I, I consider myself fairly well-informed myself, and I'll join the course. I didn't know that all this stuff happened. Um, if, if you read Lewis's book for, for one reason, I mean, all of it is very good. But just the Iraq cha- chapter, if, if you want to challenge yourself to think a little bit different about sort of how the U.S. operates in the world, um, I feel like these things got politicized. Um, really unhelpfully, certainly in the United States conversation. And maybe that's one of the reasons U.S. policy went off the rails with Iraq. We actually kind of lost sight of exactly what was going on there. And we were too busy, um, you know, having fights with ourselves by proxy through other issues. I don't know. But um, no, I mean, the the, the record and the stories that you tell are incredible.
1: Well, the stories are are true. And and, um, I tell, I use the analogy of of the cartoon Pogo, if you're old enough to uh, remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I say you know Pogo says uh, I have seen the enemy and he are us I mean we uh, we spent a lot of time at each other's throats and I'm, I mean um, not within USAID because that, that was very very harmonious but uh, with some of the other actors uh, in the uh, in the leadership of this thing so it was it was always a tough thing I I hopefully there's a hopefully I've earned my place in heaven <laughs>
0: Well, if, if I have anything to say about it, sure,
1: but well, I okay, well, I'm, I appreciate that. but my I think my wife is more of a determinant on that. <sighs> uh, how do
0: you, I have to ask how do, how do you feel about Iraq today? I mean, it's so much has happened since you left, and most of it not good. Um,
1: yeah. you know, I'm, I really have to say i'm I'm, I'm out of the loop. Uh, I went back several times. I went back in a private capacity to try to help build schools in Kurdistan. Um, and there's a lot of hope in Kurdistan. I mean, Kurdistan is stable. Um, it has resources. They're exporting oil. They're creating sort of another for better or for worse. And I'm not sure it's all, all that good. Another Dubai in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Kurdistan Erbil is just a you know, massively growing city, um, federal Iraq, the, the rest of it is, you know, they lurch from, Sort of crisis to crisis. There's the the, the the Sunni versus the Shia thing, and a lot of it. A lot of that is less, frankly, Sunni and Shia, and more of it's clan stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The the roots are uh, of that conflict are are complicated and long long standing. Um, what What Iraq has going for it is one is resources. Two, I think they they've come out of some of the instability that they've had, um, and Just had elections that I think sort of were okay. Um, I'm not terribly well informed. I mean, I'm sitting in Costa Rica, you know, (laughs) talking about pura vida. And uh, so Iraq seems like an awful long, long ways away. But, you know, if you work in development, you're sort of by definition an an eternal optimist. And I have to say, I saw, I mean, in Iraq, I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the good are, are basically the Many of the people, the the quality of their uh, education, their determination to, to work hard and, and study hard, and and so forth. So there's there's hope. And I and my, my my experience with it with working with Iraqis was was a lot more positive than uh, than if I had been you know carrying a weapon or doing something completely different than working in uh, economic development. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, let's move a little closer to home then before, before we close out, uh, because as you mentioned, um, you know, you were, you played a pivotal role, I think from a U.S. policy perspective in dealing with, um, the catastrophic hearth- earthquake in Haiti and was informed by your previous time there. Um, right. so talk a little bit about how you got called into that duty.
1: Well, I had sort of left the foreign service. I had left USAID. I, uh, my wife jokingly says every time they, they make you mad, you, you retire and, uh, <laughs> I saw so I had retired after uh after uh, being ambassador and I kept going back cuz they kept asking me to do all these really fascinating things like lead a team uh, um, in uh, the Congo to study economic governance and corruption and so forth that was that was hilarious I mean my my story quickly an aside is that the the the, the uh, anti corruption team of, of Americans had to pay a bribe in order to get into uh um, <laughs> uh, the Lubumbashi airport. And we, I mean, it, otherwise there was something terribly wrong with all of our visas just by, you know, by chance. So anyway, uh, <laughs> we had little stories like that, but, so I kept, I kept volunteering for these deployments. I went to Congo, I went to Brazil as the head of USAID. I, I went to back to Jordan in a, in a, you know role for six months or so. I went to um, anyway, so I was uh, basically in Austin, Texas looking at the television on january of what it was what i think it was twelfth two 2010 when the earthquake happened mm-hmm. and i was horrified and my uh it just so happened that one of my closest um friends and colleagues that remained with usaid was the acting administrator and he called me up and he said can you come to washington and i said uh yeah i, said, I suppose this has to do with haiti and he says yeah so i bundled myself up with a you know Basically nothing, a couple of T-shirts and a whatever, and my combat boots. And I had to, I had to Washington, and the the new head of USAID uh, had been in the office had been in the office for like two days, three days, and the earthquake happened. And anyway, my friend told him um, the administ- the new administrator that I was the guy to do the the heavy lifting in the ground, be the in charge of the the response because I had previous Haiti experience. I spoke French. I had the ambassador title and knew Haiti real well. In fact, and the the president of Haiti, when I had been there before, which was president again, uh, right during and after the earthquake. So I had all these, you know, personal relationships already established. So uh, I think it sort of made sense and I was willing to do it. I, you know, I naively thought that, you know, one should, and I, well, I still would do the same thing. Um, You know, when, when, when duty calls like that, and you're in a, in a position where you can you can really help you it, it's it, you should say yes from from time to time. you should not always say no, you should try to say yes. so I said yes, and ended up uh, the next three months uh, heading the team of u um, uh, s emergency responders and NGOs and so forth that were trying to put put a lid on uh, some of the the incredible damage from the from this earthquake, which was just Uh, astounding to see the damage human and material that had taken place It's just indescribable. Um, Really, you sort of had to be there. Uh, I worked with a a wonderful uh, military counterpart who was a a three-star general. And uh, he said, he was very deferential to me because he said, you know, this is a whole whole of government approach to the earthquake and you're the head of the government's Civilian approach, I said, "Well, General, uh, that's great. And, you, know, you you've, I've got twenty guys and, and girls here, and none of whom are particularly highly ranked. And you've got, you've got twenty-one thousand troops and sailors and coast guardsmen, and you know, and you probably got thirty colonels, full, full bird colonels on your staff. And I got, I've got diddly squat. But if you want to, if you want to pretend that I'm in charge, go right ahead. But we, we, we all know what the real story is." So we had a great relationship and worked very productively together. And we were able to, uh, uh, together, I think, to, uh, again, we, we had uh, some, we went to school in some of the previous disasters, like the, like the response to the Pakistan earthquake a few years before that, and knew sort of what to do uh, and how to do it. USAID is very well organized in terms of uh, its disaster response teams. I think we have this thing called the DART, uh, Development Assistance Response Team which has a number of um, uh, specialists in various sectors like water, transportation, logistics, um, uh, ports, uh, health, uh, and so forth. And all of these specialists, you know, were sort of in charge of uh, coordinating with uh, this whole umbrella of of uh, other institutions that were involved in this, mostly NGOs, but also the UN. And the UN had just been decimated by the earthquake. They lost all kinds of folks. and. Uh, um so we had to we had to fill in a lot of gaps where people had been killed uh leaders of the u.n and others had been killed and and work harmoniously with with the haitian government which is always a challenge because they're in some ways they were you know institutionally very very weak i mean as, as is the tradition in haiti but it's their country and we we treated them correctly and with great respect and uh we we got we worked with some really good haitians that were able to to lead at the proper times and do a lot of, uh, a lot of good things. And we, we, we work together as partners.
0: Yeah. And I, I bring it up cause it, I mean, it, it, feels a little, I know that you're in Costa Rica and things are great in Costa Rica, but the rest of the region is not like Costa Rica. Um, and it just <laughs> sort of feels like it's an, an expanding circle of, of chaos. I mean, Haiti has, you know, just had an assassination of, of a political leader and oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. is, is uh, sort of a still, recovering from the earthquake and, and still challenged institutionally. But when you kind of go down the board, I mean, Nicaragua, Honduras, Cuba, I mean, it, it sort of feels like the whole region is is struggling a little bit and that the U.S. hasn't found the right way to help.
1: Uh, all very true. Uh, I'm in touch with some of my old, old friends in Haiti uh, by email, and they're just, they just say, uh, a cu- couple of them say, well, we're we're resilient, and uh, we've been res- have, always had to be resilient. We'll get through this. The others say it's um, other Haitian friends say that it's the worst they've ever seen it, hmm. and I think really both of those are sort of true. Um, but you know, God bless Haiti. It's it's just uh, it's it's just a terrible situation there. And I'm next door. Our next country up from us is uh, is Nicaragua. Just had fraudulent fraudulent elections, and everybody knows they were fraudulent. And uh, uh, what the the end result of that is going to be I just I, I really don't know I, it's it's a shame because we went through this uh, contra Sandinista thing in the in the late uh, in the late eighties which resulted in sort of free and fair elections in Iraq which all of the results of that have gone completely away so it's uh, it's Cuba I'm just you know I, I continue to be hopeful that all of those capable smart people in Cuba are somehow going to throw throw aside their throw aside their Shackles and be be free people be, uh, once once and for all. But you're right; the region's sort of a mess, and we haven't even mentioned Venezuela and other places like that. So it's uh, it's challenging. But I'm telling you, I uh, I had to. Uh, uh, I'm not I'm not retired. I'm, I'm I still have uh, private sector companies, but I'm I'm happy to until my next private sector thing starts, which hopefully is going to be January or February. I'm happy to sort of put my feet up just at least until Thanksgiving and uh say
0: Pura vida." Yeah, no, I I, th- I think you picked your uh, I think you picked your country well. Um Lewis, I appreciate the time. Before I let you go I have to ask a little bit about what it was like to be ambassador of should I call it Swaziland? Should I call it Iswatini uh, what you know
1: what's... it's it's Iswatini now uh officially it was Swaziland when I was there. Um the king says it was always Eswatini but that was a kind of a colonial a holdover that they didn't call it that from the start of independence. But, uh, so it's Eswatini now.
0: Well, and you know, the, the story of a, of a young guy from North Carolina <laughs> suddenly becoming the the U S ambassador at Eswatini. I mean, it's, it's a charm sort of story. Don't you think,
1: you know, in some ways it was fitting. I think, uh, partly it was, uh, um, Bush 43, uh, saying, well, we, let's, I mean, this guy's been standing on his head in Iraq for a long time. Let's, uh, you know, maybe we can reward this guy and he'll probably do a decent job. But I think um, the real challenge, in, I mean, Swaziland or Iswatini is not, as you can probably surmise, is not the diplomatic uh, capital of the earth. <laughs> uh, and But they had a world-class problem in HIV AIDS. And I had experience as a development guy dealing with uh, health programs and stuff all over the world. So I was and I knew how to sort of bring a lot of this stuff together to come up with a or at least guide the process of having a a, a coherent strategy very focused about what we the United States uh, should be doing and helping to get uh, make make sure that we have sufficient resources to do something there that is meaningful and get the cooperation of the government and in things like knowing one's status you know, HIV positive or negative and getting tested and, and doing all the right things to avoid, um, to avoid the, or to, to diminish the transmission and the transmission uh, rate was the highest in the world. then. It's not anymore, but it's, it was then. So it was a big challenge and I, I went to work every day, uh, sort of, and it's a beautiful place. I mean, a lot of, in a lot of ways it looks like Costa Rica. It's, it's green hills, all that stuff. It's beautiful. Um, so, um, just like outside my door right now. And, um, i liked being there it was it was i, I was used to dealing with kings because i'd been in, in jordan where i, I had a, i had a couple different your your majesties and uh, i had a couple very uh colorful meetings with the king he really liked we, we we got along really well because when i did my credentialing ceremony i i told him i'd taken a month of siswati and i i could do the clicks in the language and, and uh he said well, let's hear it and i so i did the clicks for him and the this whole row of Swazis in their traditional outfits, just, and my, my row of Americans in their, in their business suits, you know, and dresses, everybody just broke into laughter and it just, the the Swazis (laughs) almost kind of dropped on the floor laughing. They thought it was just hilarious. So I, you know, it's a a lesson about the the, strategic use of humor is a good thing. And I was, I had great access to the King and all the other people in the, in the government as a, I think as, at least in part as a result of that and um so it was a very uh, it was a it was a fun assignment but it was it was also serious because people were people were dying right and left I mean my staff I'd go to work on Monday and a couple of people on my staff had died over the weekend from it from HIV AIDS mm-hmm. and the accompanying uh you know tuberculosis or whatever the the, the accompanying diseases were so um we we had a good american team we worked very productively with the swazis we put together a coherent strategy i had some really excellent uh world-class uh experts that were there and it was a it was very challenging but it was it was also very satisfying yeah
0: all right well lewis i want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk talk to me on the podcast i want to thank you even more for writing the book for taking the time to do it Uh, made me feel positive about the United States in a way that I haven't for a long time. And that was a feeling um, that was really worthwhile for me. Uh, And I hope that I hope that other readers can have that feeling as well from reading. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on sometime.
1: Thanks, Jake. All the best to you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.